it's been a good series. It's been a challenge in my own life to look at what is the main thing. And uh, you, if you remember, if you've been here through the whole series, the first Sunday that Jeff talked about, he, he talked about from uh, Luke 15, where we actually have three parables of Jesus back to back that come out of context where Jesus' uh, disciples are being questioned, why does your master eat with outsiders? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Those are like, you know, outside people. They're not, they'll make you unclean type of thing. And in response, Jesus tells three parables. And in every parable, something's lost. And the first one is a sheep. The second one, it's a coin. And the last one, it's a son, maybe two sons. And then he tells of a search that goes on by the shepherd, by the woman who lost her coin. And, and, you know, the last one, just every day, the dad is looking over the horizon, hoping that his younger son comes home. And then every time that they found that which is lost, when the shepherd finds the sheep, he calls his friends together, they party. The woman calls her friends together, she found this lost coin. And the father throws a banquet, gets the fatted calf, which is really the highest celebration, kind of like our turkey you know, at, Chris, uh, at Thanksgiving or maybe even Christmas time. It's just this special thing there. And, and everybody celebrates because God celebrates when that which is lost is found. And then the next week, uh, Jeff talked about different ways that people share their faith. Some are uh, kind of confrontative. They come right at, at your face. I'm amazed at those people. I am not one of those. I'm the shy introvert that just, uh, I'm amazed when people do that and how smoothly they do it, but that's not me. I'm not that kind of salesman type of thing. But those, there, are, there are people that are gifted like that. Then there's those that maybe just intellectually they can sit down and talk to people and, and bring them to a rational understanding of Jesus. There are those that are going to share their testimony, and, and Jesus tells us to do that. And there's those that do a relational part. Jeff talked about six different ways that we can do that. And then, I don't know if you were here last week, but I was really challenged because Jeff talked about what are you doing with your faith? Are you invited people to church, particularly unsaved people, unchurched people? Or even like Randy said today, to invite them to the event that's coming up this week with the roller coasters and things that go around. I don't know about you. I'm sitting up front and I'm watching on the screen. I'm starting to get sick. So if I invite somebody, I'm at that age. I don't go on those rides anymore. I just, you know, you know your limits and, you know, you want to keep everything in you, in you and not, you know, project it somewhere else. Uh, but, you know, uh, that's, that could be a place that maybe you invite somebody. I was thinking about that, and I was thinking of what we're talking about today, what Jeff shared that I, that I should share with you. And, and, and really, it's this. It's to let your life speak. Your life is your greatest testimony. People just watching you. One of the things over and over again as provost of Southeastern that I've told the faculty, and they, they probably get tired of me hearing it, but I say more is caught than taught. And I tell them, I tell the faculty, I said, students are looking at your lives. Yeah, they're hearing their words and they're hearing the content of the discipline that you're teaching to them, but they're also looking at you. And, and they not only watch you in the class and how you deal with one another and people and so forth, they watch you as you walk across campus, they watch you when you go to the restaurant and when you eat, they're watching your life. And it's scary sometimes because I'll have a student come up to me and they'll say, hey, I saw you doing this, and I, I didn't know that it was a God moment that somebody's life was being touched by what I was doing. It makes you really kind of paranoid, you know. I, you know, people are watching, people are watching. I might see students that, you know, I had 10 years ago, I just did last week, uh, we had an event on campus and some people from the community came in and I had two students that were working for an organization, Heartland for Children, that came up to me that said, you know, I had you 10 years ago, I had you 12 years ago, and was it good? 
Was I okay? And, you know, you kind of have those thoughts. You know, are you remembering me because I was the worst professor you ever have? You know, those thoughts are going in my mind. But again, it's that idea that more is caught than taught. About 36 years ago, my wife and I were living in Phoenix. We took our family out there. We had just got done. My wife got done nursing school. I had got done seminary. And we just thought we, we, were, had, we did all that in Massachusetts, and we hate cold weather. We always felt that we were northern children stolen from birth from, by some northern people, that we should have really been born in the south or something like that. But after living five years in Massachusetts and going through blizzards and everything, we, we decided to thaw out in Phoenix. Arizona. It's a good place for that to happen. You know, 100 degrees, you know, starts creeping up in, in April and stays all the way till October. So uh, you, you can really thaw out in that sort of climate. But, but after being there a year, we decided to buy our first home. And, and I can remember the realtor that we were working, I still remember the day that he said something to us that really just took me by surprise. My wife probably knew all about it anyway. But he said, there's something about you that, that is just different. This is what he's saying to her. There's something about you. He said, there's kind of like there's a sparkle in your eye. There's kind of like a joy to, to me. And, you know, you don't have to be too stupid as a Christian that you can't kind of figure and say, you know, this might be an opportunity to share our faith. And we did. And we said, well, maybe it's Christ that is in our life and he has really made a difference. And he brings us an inward joy that is unspeakable, that's full of glory. And he, he listened to that, and he said, you know, that might be it. But he said, you know, I have some friends that are Christ followers. And he said, I really am kind of disappointed with them. We said, well, what is that? And he said, well, one time they invited me to this concert, music concert. And he said, it was fine. I was enjoying it. But at the end, it's like the ushers shut all the doors so you couldn't get out. And there were like security guards at each exit type of thing. And the guy got up there and he started saying, okay, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, we have you locked in the room right now. They didn't say that, but you kind of had that impression. And, and then they gave this you know, salvation message and, and you know, you're not going home until everybody in the room comes forward or something like that. It was just kind of scary. And, and what he said to us, he said, you know, I understand that. I've been in church before and I, I've come up against people like that. But he said, I was really annoyed that my friends didn't tell me that that was gonna happen. It was kind of like they tricked me to be here. And I didn't like that trick. So I was really disappointed. And he said, that's what I've often come up against some Christians. I'm not sure that I trust them. And, and I think one of the most frustrating things for me is that when I hear people say something like that, or I, again, you heard me, maybe heard me say this before, when you hear people put the word hypocrite and Christian in the same sentence, or hypocrites and church in the same sentence. It annoys us. I hope it annoys us. But it annoys me because I don't want that in the same sentence. I think there ought to be something that is genuine and, and, and of quality when we mention Christian. I, I, I would hope that just like that realtor did, praise God that he just said, there's something about you that is different. There's just something in you that comes radiating out, and there's just something about our life. And our life means something. Uh, th there's a passage that has always kind of been solid to me and, and has intrigued me. It's, the this, it's a, a parable that Jesus gives at the closing of the Sermon on the Mount. He also does it in Luke chapter 6 and when he's doing the ser Sermon on the Level Place. And he closes with this parable. And, and, and Matthew says this at the end in Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in verse 24 to 27. 
and I think they might have it on the screen. It's up there, okay? It says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, and notice the, what the next word is, and puts them into practice. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew against the house. We kind of know about that with Irma and Harvey and, and other, you know, and now Nate. Uh, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But then he says in the next verse, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice. Notice the difference. The first guy heard these words and put them into practice. The second guy is hearing the same words, but did not put them into practice. First guy was like building his house on the rock. So when life was throwing stuff at him, storms and rain and rivers rising and so forth, his house stood, all right? The other guy who heard the words, just like the first guy, but did not put them into practice. He's like the man building on the sand so that when the storms of life came, what happened? His house fell with a great crash. In other words, it's not enough to hear God's word. We need to hear that this morning. It's not enough to hear God's word. That's not going to make us solid. It, it is the ingredient, though, that if we take that word and put it into practice in our life, our life will be solid. It'll be able to handle the storms of life, the hurricanes, the crisis that come through, the shootings and all the crazy stuff in this world. God's word works when we apply it, when we apply it. And that's the important thing that he says, we must do something with this. It's important that we do. So this morning, we want to look at four areas where we might want to apply that word. And the first area that we want to look at is, is how we work and how we live. I mean, that's pretty broad in general. But the word ought to apply in both our workplace, but just in our life itself. We cannot evangelize our, 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 our coworkers uh, by, or, or let me put it this way, we can evangelize our coworkers by how we do our job, by how we work, by our work ethic. The fact that we show up on time, the fact that we work diligently on that time and we don't waste time, we don't go off for a half an hour and just have a conversation just about life with somebody. Or maybe I've even unfortunately seen this, that Christians work for somebody and they feel like their job time that they're being paid for is time to share the gospel from their mouth. And they're taking the boss's time that that boss is paying them to witness. I mean, I'm all for witnesses. We've been talking about that for the past couple weeks, the main thing. But there's a time and a place for that. Maybe you do it after work. Maybe you do it during your lunch break. That's when you do it. But when you're on the clock working for your boss, your boss is paying you to do that job which he's contracted for you to do. And that's the important thing. I can remember years ago, I was in this role, again, as a provost over the faculty, the chief academic officer. And I had a faculty member that was, just forgive me, but overly spiritual, overly Pentecostal, overly charismatic, all right? Now, some of you might be right there as well, but just let me tell you about this person, all right? I'm paying this person to teach classes to students because, like, the students want their education and they need to learn this material. 
And, and we are a faith-based institution, so yeah, we encourage our faculty to integrate the faith into your lectures and into your discipline and show how God works in this. And, and you know, maybe the simplest thing is just opening your class up and pray, and maybe even taking prayer requests that you can pray for students in the class. But at the same time, I'm also paying you to teach your discipline, your study. You know, if I, if I hire you to teach science and the student's coming here and has a science degree, I, I want you to like teach that. If I'm hiring you to teach math, you know, that scary subject, and students have to have that class to pass, and they're probably nervous already. I've seen grown adults cry when they realize they have to take math in order to graduate some part in some degree. It's kind of scary at that point. And when I hire you to do it, I hope you're going to teach that math. Well, this professor would have the students who would come in, open up in prayer, but then just kind of go off in prayer and speak in tongues and raise their hand, even at times uh, roll around in the class back and forth, speaking in tongues, doing all those crazy Pentecostal things that you know, I'm a part of, scary, all right? But do all those crazy things. And I had to confront this, you know, first of all, I got students that are scared enough about math and you're rolling on the floor, it doesn't help, right? You know, I don't know where two plus two figures into that, but I, I'm paying you to do that. Now, he thought I was unspiritual for doing that. Uh, we actually had to go to the board and to the president on that particular thing, but, you know, I'm, I'm glad the board backed me. We hired you to teach, teach, right? It's okay to pray at the beginning of the class, but to roll around in the class for the entire period. And then the students walk out not learned anything about math or science or whatever the subject is you're teaching. There's something wrong with that. Are you, are you following me at this point? It's important to do what we've been paid to do at that point. All right? So it's an important thing. Our worth ethic should say something. Our lifestyle should say something. What is our life speaking? All right? Hopefully our life is showing faithfulness, dependability, reliability, that people can trust us, that we can keep confidences. Uh, we should live a life that, that our enemies cannot find anything wrong to say about us. Now, I'm, I'm not just making that up. That's what Scripture says. There's a passage, I think they're going to show it on the screen, on 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, where it says this. It says, Dear friends, it's always a good way to start. Maybe you're going to confront somebody. But he says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners in exile to abstain from sinful desires. Well, yeah, we should all abstain from that as Christ followers, which wage against our soul. But then he says this, look at verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he will visit us. Live such good lives that among the pagans, that they can't find anything wrong. Now, what's interesting, when I studied this particular verse, it, it was interesting to me when I looked at some of the original language here. In, in the Greek language that this was written in, there's a, two different words that they use for good. All right, I'll give them to you today, just for fun. Kalos and agathos. Agathos usually has the idea of, of kind of integrity, a solidness. You know, this is, a, this is a good man. This is a good woman. They're a good family. God is a good God. And you would think that Peter would have used that word here. That's what intrigued me when I was looking at this in the original language. You would think that Peter would have used agathos, but he doesn't use it. 
In both these places, when he, when he talks about good lives and good deeds, he uses the other word, which is the word kalos, which often means attractive or appealing. Now think about that. Why did Peter use that word? In fact, if you go to Matthew 5, Jesus used the same thing when he says, do good deeds that your people will glorify your Father in heaven. Attractive deeds, things that are appealing. Our life and the things that we do ought to be attractive and appealing to the world. I'm not always sure that happens as Christ followers. I think sometimes people look at us as the dampeners on happiness. Oh, the Christians in the room now can't have any fun anymore. All right, they're here now. Okay, can't tell any more jokes. You know, we can't do this, we can't do that. There ought to be something attractive and appealing about what we do and our life itself that people want to say, you're different and I want to be like you. There's something in you that radiates something that I want to have and I know is missing in my own life. When I was a young boy spending summers with my grandparents, their life did this. Some of you may have heard me talk about before. I always thought my, my grandparents had a, a religious hang-up because every night we would have to turn off the TV and get down on our knees in the living room and, and pray out loud. And they were always listening to Christian radio and watching people like Billy Graham on, on the television. And on Sunday, we would have to go to church. I was just up there to have fun. And I always thought they had this religious hang-up. But it was their good lives that eventually, even after they passed away, that eventually brought me to saving grace with Jesus. I couldn't get rid of the fact that they were some of the neatest people that I ever knew. And if there was ever a man that I wanted to be like, it was my grandfather because he had that attractive, peeling light. There, there was something of joy in him and people always had fun around him and they respected him because of his character and his dependability and his trust. That's what God wants and we don't realize it though but that's a witness of God in us that people can see every single day. More is caught than taught, right? There's something in us that needs to be caught by other people. Do we have that attractiveness in our life? Now, what's interesting to me, and they, they don't have this on the screen. I didn't give it to them. But the verses that follow this in, in 1 Peter 2, let me read them to you. It says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Think about that. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Not some, not one or two, every human authority. Whether to the emperor, all right, let me just stop there. To the emperor. Who was the emperor at the time of Peter's writing? Most historians tell us the emperor was Nero. You ought to read about Nero. Just Google him. And he's an interesting character. Because he did some things on the slide, and then he blamed it on these Christians. So hatred rose against, and persecution rose against Christians because he blamed all the faults on them. Similar to what, what Hitler did in World War II with Jewish people. All our problems are because of them. And so persecution rose heavily during his time among Christians. This is when on Sunday you're watching a game and it's Lions 4, Christians 0. And it's not football. You know, different time that they lived in. And here is Nero that since he had this hatred, 
And he had the people hating Christians. He actually would do this. He would take Christians and impale them on a pole. And then he placed them around his garden at night and set them on fire. Not a good time to be a Christ follower. And here's Peter saying this, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. And then he says this in verse 15, for it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. And, and I, I just wonder about the people reading this. You know, Peter, have you been sniffing something? Did you get that medical marijuana and, you know, make some brownies? I mean, what happened here? Don't you realize who is emperor? It's Nero. And you're telling us to submit to him and all those other governors and so forth that he has put in place. Yeah, because I want your life to speak something. I want your life to be different. And then he says in verse 17, he says, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Again, coming back to that. Honor the emperor. Yeah, respect all people. Love the family of believers. But even honor, it's almost like that shouldn't even be in the same sentence with loving believers and honoring the emperor. And then he goes, and I think we have this verse to look up. He says to slaves, in 1 Peter 2, 18 to 21, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your masters. Again, interesting thing. Now, we have to understand, too, that slavery was not like slavery was in this country years ago. Slavery was something that a person could actually sell themselves into because they had gotten in debt. They had gotten in credit cards over their head. I don't know what it was at that time. But they could say, hey, I will work for you for six years if you will take care of me and my family. I will be your slave. I will be your servant in this. So you could actually go into it that way. And so he's saying now, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate. You know, it's easy to work for a boss that is good and considerate, where you enjoy the workplace and the atmosphere, but also to those who are harsh. Whoa, 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 wait a second here. Even to harsh bosses, yes. And look what he says in the next verse. For it is commendable. It is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. God working in their life and maybe using that opportunity to show who he is and what it means to follow in his steps, to be like Christ. And then it says, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? Well, you did wrong. You probably deserve that beating. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable for, 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 before God. To this you were called. Oh, wait a second here. I want to kind of cross that. I'm called to do this as a Christ follower? Yes, you're called to be good all the time. You're called to be good for nothing. Right? Nobody needs to pay you to be good. You're called to be good all the time. We're called to be good for God. That is commendable for us. Why? He says, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Do we walk in the steps of Jesus? Do we let his life come through us? Well, then there are going to be times when we're going to be under a hard taskmaster or an emperor 
or are we going to be treated wrongly for something that we're doing, even though we're doing right? And yet, God wants us to exemplify Jesus in those situations. All right, two more areas, and they're short, they're quick, and give you. God wants us to be at our best no matter what. Okay, how we treat outsiders. How do we treat others in situations, all right? I, I think there's plenty of scripture that deals with this. One of them that comes to mind is Philippians 2.5 where they're having some sort of disagreement and, and disharmony, and Paul addresses them and says, have the same attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Have the same attitude in yourself that was in Christ Jesus. And then he goes and he talks about Jesus, who was in the form of God, chose to lay all his godly rights and prerogatives aside and come and take on the form of a human being, even a servant, and go to the cross. Have that attitude in us. God, help me to have that attitude in me. Then there's Matthew 7, 12. I think you know this one. We call it the golden rule. We also find it in Luke 6. But it says, so in everything, do unto others as you would have done to you. Sometimes we don't realize that Jesus took a rule that was already out there and he tweaked it. The rule that was already out there in culture, in Jewish culture, was don't do to others what you don't want done to you. Don't do to others what you don't want done to you. In other words, don't beat somebody up, don't key their car, you know, don't drive over their yard. You don't want that done to you. Jesus takes that and makes it active. Do unto others what you would like done to you, right? Be the initiator. Pay it forward, we might say. Do good in situations, what you would like, and maybe someday it'll come back to you, but it doesn't matter. This is what I've asked you to do. Do unto others like you would die done to you. And then there's the second commandment. What? Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus also added in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemy. Pray for those who misuse you and mistreat you. And then in, in the night when he's going to be later arrested and then tried and then eventually go to the cross, he's in the upper room with his disciples. And in John 13, gives the situation where he washes their feet and he washes all the disciples' feet. And he knows what some of them are going to do that very night. He washes Peter's feet. And he tells Peter, you're going to go out and deny me, but I'm washing your feet because I love you and I care for you. He takes Judas, who he knows has already set the plan in place to portray Jesus. And he washes his feet, lovingly caring. And then after Judas leaves, he again talks to the disciples. And in, in verses 34 and 35, he says, a new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. Why? He's loved Peter and Judas. Maybe you wouldn't even say Judas was an enemy at that point, but Jesus lovingly cared for him. He knew Peter was going to go out that night and deny him three times, but he lovingly cared, and he said, love one another as I have loved you. And then he says, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That's the radiating witness that we have. People will see our love when we express it to them and to other people. People watch, it, watch us. Do we have that sort of love that we extend it to outsiders? All right? And so what are we supposed to do? We, we are to treat people with love and respect, all people. Why? Because all people are created in the image and likeness of God. God is in them. They might not be acting that way. They might be terrorists. They might be some crazy person in a motel room in Las Vegas with 23 assault rifles. and Might be somebody like that. 
Maybe if somebody had loved that individual, that situation that we saw this week would have never happened. We don't know. They're still trying to figure out what happened there. But we are to love all people, no matter their color, the color of their skin, their ethnic background, their religious beliefs, their political view, their gender, their sexual preference. It doesn't matter. We are to love them. That's an interesting statement because as I watch our society, particularly in this last year, that when we don't like somebody, like a president or an individual that stands for something, it's perfectly all right to protest, to make fun of that person, to, to badmouth that person, to curse, to boycott that person. It's perfectly all right to do that. Yes, we have a free country. But I wonder at times what Jesus would say to us in that situation. Remember, submit to the emperors over you. And then to, to go and, and see our society move that way, that if we don't like somebody because they think different than us, they have a different political viewpoint or somebody like that, we will riot on our college campus. We will protest that outsider come in because we don't like them. Where is our country going? And how much more they need a Christian light and a witness to say, hey, we love all people. Well, it's an interesting thing. If you look at the life of Jesus, he never came to the outsiders, to the tax collectors, the sinners, to the prostitutes, to those that were lost, the poor, the blind, the needy. He never came to them with a list of rules of do's and don'ts. He never started with that. He started with love and compassion and acceptance. He reached out to them. Nobody from the religious strain was doing that because they were unclean. They were outsiders. But Jesus did that. He often amazed them. Read in John 4 when Jesus sits at the well in Samaria and a woman comes who's a Samaritan who at the same time has had five husbands and is living a man who's not her husband, a sixth person. And how much he loves and accepts her. It blows her away, that sort of love. The only time that people started, uh, Jesus started using a list of rules or directions or confronted were the religious and spiritual people who believed they had it all together. He came down toughest on them because they lacked that love and compassion and acceptance that he had. He modeled it. He loved those sort of people and he wants us to do the same thing. So he has always opened up with love and acceptance, and so should we, to all people. The church shouldn't be known for hating people that, that, are, that are transgender, or homosexual, or that are Muslim. Church should love them equally. Why? Because they are created in the image of God. Wow, something to think about. Well, third, what do we say? Here's a real easy one because I'm only give you one scripture, but it's a scripture that has just shaped my life and onto this, and I still at times fail when it comes to this particular verse. In Ephesians 4.29, it says this. You can read it. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Do not let any unwholesome talk you know, we're told in Scripture that our, that our, life ha our tongue has the power of life and death. We can bless or we can curse with the same tongue. 
And Paul kind of lays it right on the line here. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. What do we as parents communicate to our children? Is it love? Is it encouragement that we build up? What do we, what do we communicate to our neighbors, to our coworkers, maybe to our employers, or maybe even to our boss? What do we communicate? Is it for love and for building up? Our tongue has that sort of power. And we need to think about verse like this because it's a part of getting across the main thing, right? That if we're really going to share about Christ and his love, our tongue ought to kind of line up with that. And the last thing I want to think about here, the fourth area is who are we? Who are we? We are salt and light. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about this right after he has given the Beatitudes. And he says this, you are the salt of the world. You are the light of the world. Now, what's interesting is we don't see this in the original, or we, we don't see this in the English translation. As you look at that, it says you are, you don't see an exclamation mark after it. But the grammar in the original language is very clear that this is an, an emphatic statement. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. Why does he use those two topics, salt and light? Well, for once, they didn't have any refrigeration. So often, if you wanted to keep meat another day or two or a fish or something like that, you would rub salt on it to keep it from rotting quickly because you didn't have refrigeration, especially in Israel. Wasn't happening then. You're not living on the North Pole. You're in Israel. It's hot. It's dry. So you need something. So salt, because of that factor. I mean, we all know just from a couple of weeks ago with Irma, probably most of us in this room went without power. And the first thing we thought about was our freezer or our refrigerator. And if we didn't have a generator, you know, spoiled. We're not used to that. We are spoiled, all right? We're not used to that. And then to imagine places like the Outer Islands and, and uh, Puerto Rico and so forth, and the Keys and places in Texas, to imagine them, that those places have been going weeks without that. You don't know what you have to what's gone. And all of a sudden, those things are gone. So they knew the value of salt. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, you are salt. You have that preserving power. You have that savoring power because we like salt on our food. We, we like to bring out that sort of taste. Some of us live for that sort of salt. We love it so much. We feel that food was maybe made for salt, not salt for food. It's that important. It has that preserving power. It's healing power. You have a cut and you go into the salt water. It might sting at first, but you notice your wound healing a lot quicker. So there's a lot of values. And he said, that's the way I want you to be. I want you to be preserving what is right in this world as believers. I want you to add savor and enjoyment and taste to this world. I, I want you to be healers in this world. I want you to be something of value. And then he says, you are the light of the world. Again, light, they didn't have electricity. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Those cities in Israel are made out of limestone. It's a white rock. 
The stars at night and the moon would reflect at that from far distance, and even if they didn't have candles burning or fire, just the reflection of the moon and the stars on the city from far away could see it. And he says, that's what you are to be. You are to be that beam of light that pe for people who are lost and hurting. You are to shine in the darkness. Hey, and just as, as, as light is energy to, to, to ourselves, there's power in it. We are to be that light. Right? And just as the light causes things to grow, plants and so forth, we are to cause things to grow. There's that idea of light that just energizes. It gives us that vitamin D that our body needs. It's a powerful force. We know what it's like at times to go through a number of rainy days and cloudy days. We start to get depressed. Right? I can remember winters at certain places and just, you know, by March you're just praying for, you know, some sunny days that will just kind of hang around. Again, that's where I was in Massachusetts. So again, so I could go to Arizona and get some light. And then you, you got too much. That's 120. Let's stop. But, you know, there is that light. There is that power in that. And he says, that's what we are. We are to energize. We are to cause growth. We, we are to be that sense of power. We are to be that beam. To be. And even think about this. I often, I'm trying out these new lights that we have here. But it's depressing to me because I can't see some of your faces. All right? I want to see you. And I always feel that, you know, you know, you want somebody to brighten up the room. Unfortunately, some people brighten up the room when they leave. You know, they're gone now. Okay, that dark spot is gone. All right, but we use it that way. We often talk even in sayings like this, you know, I'm in a dark place. I'm looking to see the light. Or we have that little light bulb that goes on. And he said, man, I, I, I came up with a new idea. A light went off in my mind. You see how positive things are like salt and light. And Jesus is saying, this is what we are. Be it. Be the light in your world. Be the light in your family. Be the light in your job place. Be the light in your neighborhood. Be the salt. Make that difference. This is what we are to be. This is the main thing. Because ultimately, when people ask us about it, we can say, well, you know, it's not me. It's Jesus in me. He is the hope of glory. He has transformed my life and given me joy. And then we had that opportunity to share our testimony. So we are called to be different. Our life, our words, our actions, our work. We are called to be attractive and appealing. That should be our witness of our Lord. Uh, those things should, should cause others to take notice when we have those characteristics in our life. What's our work ethic? Is it strong? Do we, do we watch the clock and look for every break? Or are we the, noted as the hard workers? What do your words say? Are you always negative and condemning? Or are you lifting up and bringing hope and encouragement and looking out to things that edify and build people up? Are we salt and light? Yeah, I, I struggle with this just as you do. That's why we have this series. Because God wants to speak to us as Christ followers and asking us to step up to the plate Remember what the main thing is, reaching people that have no hope, people that are lost, just like some of us were, probably most of us were. And, and if we can be the salt and the light, if we can be the word of encouragement, if people can look at our life and see something different, it opens up a door, an avenue that we can talk to them and say, you know, again, it's Christ in me. Let me tell you about him. He has transformed my life. He has brought me that joy. He has made a difference in my marriage, in my home. You need him too. Can I tell you how to receive him?
into your life. And so if you bow your, your heads with me, maybe stand with me. You've been sitting for a while. Get some of those juices going because you're going to walk out of here in about two minutes. All right? I don't want you to be stuck there in the seat. But it maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus and you, this is your first Sunday or maybe you've heard that past series. But this is what we're all about as Christ followers. And again, I just want to give you the opportunity, if you don't know him, it's real simple. Simple things to say, Lord, come into my life. I need you. I am desperate. I lack the hope that people talk about, that the pastor is talking about today. Lord, I receive you. I'm a sinner. I, I can't do it on my own. And accept him. Jesus, come in. And he'll do it. Then ask somebody, you know, what does that mean? Somebody will tell you. And at the same time, if you're here like me, we, we are Christ followers, some of us in this room, probably most of us in this room. But Father, we don't always line up and live as we should in our job, in our home, with our words. We're not always the salt and light that you tell us we are. Help us by your spirit. Remind us by your spirit each day what the main thing is and what our life plays in that. And so this week, let it be different. Holy Spirit, remind us when we, we are not doing what we should and help us to do what we should, that we would live the quality of life that even our enemies can't find anything to say about it. Help us in that, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Have a great day. We'll see you next week, maybe. Jeff will be back. Get some good stuff.